0: Like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we gather today and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here today. Well hello and welcome back to another episode of Inspired by Yarra. This is the podcast that's created to enhance, connect and inspire the Yarra Valley Grammar community and beyond. So wherever you might be tuning in from today, thank you and welcome, welcome to this growing library of conversations with YOGS Yarra Old Grammarians. My name's Paul Joy and it is my privilege each week to sit down with another Yarra Old Grammarian to unpack their story, their journey, their adventure, both their recollections of time at school and those decisions, choices, options and adventures that have happened since leaving Yarra Valley Grammar. Today I'm sitting down with Professor Ewan Ritchie, from the class of 1993. An environmental scientist, a keen sportsman, an artist of sorts. (laughs) I think you're going to enjoy this conversation with Ewan and he is going to take us on some adventures, some trips. He's going to offer us a few tips and suggestions as to how we might tread lightly on the environment. So that it is there for many generations to come. He is one who supports the notion of hard work and persistence, and finding your passion, discovering it, unpacking it, and then pursuing it. You and Richie from the class of 1993. I'm going to begin our conversation by asking, when did you start your journey at Yarra Valley Grammar? I started in year seven and I'm pretty sure it was
1: 1988, which was the bicentennial year. So it's an easy one to remember. <laughs>
0: Very good, very good. And do you recall any uh, special uh, celebrations or, or anything to recognize that year in particular?
1: Uh, I do remember going to the expo in Brisbane actually with my family, which I think a lot of people did, um, you know, so that seemed to be the thing that you did in the bicentenary year. And I think I also do remember the tall ships coming in Port Phillip Bay. And yeah, my late, my late father was a big fan of sailing ships. So we went out on the bay and, um, that was really fun to see all those amazing ships in full sail coming in through the heads. So, yes. yeah, and, they're the things I probably remember the most.
0: Probably the, 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 old wooden ships, wouldn't they have been? Absolutely. Yes, yeah. right and and as you say quite a spectacle coming through the heads there. Yeah. and And probably lots of little support craft around too, getting a close-up look. It was certainly busy on the water that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very good memories and and even let's go a bit further, do you recall, did you go you know the Queen's Cliff side or which side of the heads do you think? Uh, you were
1: it was definitely on the Mornington Peninsula side. So okay. yeah, we uh, we, we,
0: we, watched them um, on that side of the bay. So um, yes. yeah. Good memories and, and memories of, of both a historical event but also a family event by the sounds of it, something that you yeah. celebrated uh, together. Take us back into school, Year 7. It's a time where lots of students come from lots of different backgrounds and it's a real melting pot of uh, stories and adventures and backgrounds. What are some early memories? Did you, did you meet a friend on the very first day? Did you go on camp early on? What, what are some things that you recall about Year 7?
1: Well, I think the first thing is, is, it was, was challenging in the sense that I didn't know a single person when I went to Yarra. So, uh, you know, I left my primary school, which was Tempest Bay Valley Primary School and went to, um, you know, Yarra Valley Anglican School, as it was called then. It's obviously now changed its name and, um, yeah, I didn't know a single person. So that was fairly daunting to basically go to, a, you know, a relatively large school, uh, not knowing anyone there. But, uh, I guess probably credit to the school, it did feel like a welcoming place and a, a, an open place. And yeah, I quickly made friends and felt like I fit in. So it didn't make that transition too difficult. And I do remember camps. I'm trying to think there was a camp down, I think it's Wonthaggy. Or Glen Maggie, sorry. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I always confuse those two. Um, and that was really enjoyable. Because I'm an environmental scientist myself and I actually really enjoy being in the outdoors a lot. That's what makes me I guess happiest. Having a, a camp that was very much focused around outdoor activities, um, for me was perfect.
0: Yes, so let's keep going with the outdoor theme because one of the things that happens uh, at year seven is Saturday sport. We sort of launch into Saturday sport and most Students coming from, from other primary schools, in fact even our own junior school, they don't regularly participate in Saturday sport with the school, but our year sevens, we begin Saturday sport. What, what are your memories of that? Was it something you look forward to getting up on a Saturday morning or, or did you prefer to try and watch a few more cartoons?
1: (laughs) I have two, I think interesting memories of sport. Uh, one is uh, cricket and I remember I think uh, playing one game of cricket and being hit on the thumb and breaking the nail and being quite painful and I don't think actually playing another game after that. But what I do remember more positively is basketball. So I'm a huge basketball fan. and I've been playing basketball since I was about seven. And so for me to continue that, um, at Yarra was a really easy and enjoyable thing to do. So I very much looked forward to playing basketball for Yarra, um, both during the week with things like training, but also, um, in a competitive sense,
0: you know, against
1: other schools. That was a lot of fun.
0: So, so let's pursue basketball a little longer. Is there a, is there a particular game that you, I, I, don't know basketball particularly well, but did you uh, foul at the right time or did you, you <laughs> know, throw the winning hoop just as the buzzer went to uh, to, to score a mighty victory? I actually did do that once, so I think it's, I think it's everyone's dream as a
1: basketball player to sort of shoot that, you know, clutch shot right, that, that wins the game for your team. And I do remember one game, in fact, I think it was played down at, might have been Albert Park, um, when the, all the basketball courts were down there. And uh, we were in a pretty close game for quite a long time and um, we made a bit of run at the end. I do remember shooting a three-point shot right near the end, which basically helped clinch the game. So, um, yeah, that's an enjoyable memory.
0: (laughs) And, And your teammates, no doubt, would vouch for you? Uh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> because often these stories get bigger and better yeah, and you're further out. That's right,
1: they're, they're <laughs> like fishing stories, the fish yeah. keeps getting bigger even though the fish is long, long dead.
0: So um. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, uh, I wonder if, if we might um, make our way a little bit further down the middle school um, journey and it, you get to a point where you get to start making some subject choices and there are some electives to take. Do you recall uh, you've mentioned your interest in the outdoors and and environmental science and so forth was that evident really early back then as well in terms of your subject choice
1: It was so uh, I'd always had a natural affinity with biology which I guess is the sort of closest you get to environmental type subject early on in high school And so that subject I guess came easily for me and I did really well at it and so I guess I wanted to keep pursuing it but what was I guess interesting and I did have to make a bit of a choice is that, uh, I was also quite good at graphic art and enjoyed Mm. doing that. And that maybe potentially came from my dad, who was an architectural draftsman for many years. And he was very good at drawing things and, um, had beautiful handwriting and things like that as well. But, um, so I did sort of have to make a bit of a choice really about whether I would sort of go down the sort of scientific and, um, you know, environmental type path or whether I'd pursue more of an artistic, um, career and I've obviously decided to pursue a, um, a scientific career. But that doesn't mean of course that, you know, art and science can't necessarily gel as well, they absolutely do.
0: So, and I actually enjoy, you know, doing that when I have the opportunity to do that, so. Mm. Fantastic and finding the, the crossover of those two pursuits is, is absolutely there and, and and we would say from an artistic perspective, there's lots to be, um, seen in nature and, and the beauty of nature but also, uh, the, I guess the symmetries that are available and the patterns and the rhythms that nature just keeps on uh, showing and revealing to us uh, is really Ab- quite absolutely.
1: beautiful. Yeah and I think the other thing that I think is similar about art and science is that they're both creative pursuits. So you know, mm-hmm. in, in science you're actually creating something that never existed before because you're creating knowledge. You know, so by you know, doing experiments, observation and learning things. That provides information for society that we didn't have before and likewise an artist creating a painting or something that didn't exist before. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of commonality there between the two.
0: Yeah I, I like that and and also I would say to step it down the similar pathway is that both require a, a certain deal of experimentation and risk taking and Absolutely. and, a, and a, a sense of curiosity to go and yeah. I, I wonder what this will do, I wonder what this might turn out to be and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's, it's an interesting pursuit and I, I, must confess I probably haven't necessarily seen art speaking to science and science speaking to art so clearly but, but obviously it's there. Absolutely. Yes, you, you continue to pursue uh, your interests in uh, academics and I imagine enjoyed being in the classroom or would you say certain classrooms? Do you have any stories about classes you really enjoyed being in and or some which you uh, probably preferred not to be. <laughs> uh,
1: look I really enjoyed biology as I said before. Uh, I really enjoyed anything to do with sport and anything to do with art. All of those were really enjoyable. Geography as well. Um, I would say and probably interestingly, that I actually found subjects like chemistry and physics and even some math actually quite difficult. And I think that just shows that even if you are a scientist, It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be great at all different types of science or even gravitate towards different types of science. And I think that's important to recognize that, you know, you should pursue your passions. So... You know just because you might not gravitate towards physics or might not necessarily have it come easily doesn't mean you can't have a great career in biology or vice versa. Yes. So you know I think for me that was a really important lesson and I, and I think you know the school did a good job of basically letting people you know play to their strengths and to you know have a variety of, of subjects on offer and, and you know pursue Um, you need to have those basic building blocks like maths and chemistry and so forth as a scientist. But not make that the, the only focus Mm. and allow people to really, you know, um, chase their passions, which for me was biology. But Mm. yeah, I do have a really, and did have a really strong love of art and, and sport as well at the same time.
0: Yes, so along the lines of co-curricular, which is often a space where we, we are able to explore some of those interests and, 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 and maybe develop passion. What do you recall of the co-curricular program? Were there other clubs or activities that you chose to be part of?
1: Uh, well in terms of other activities that I chose to be a part of, the thing that I really enjoyed being a part of was the Estedfords. <laughs> so, uh-huh. um, which again is really taking me back now. And I remember actually quite vividly performing at the ten- tennis centre as it was called then. Um, and that was pretty amazing, being up on stage and performing in that. So again, having the opportunity to, I guess, you know, have a, um, again an artistic pursuit, drama. Um, was was really enjoyable experience and, and the camaraderie of that as well. So you know, being in a in a, a big group of fellow students, you know, having to sort of get costumes together, get the set together, do all the practices, you know, jump on the bus, go to the performance and then have this huge crowd yes. that you did it in front of when you're competing against all the other schools. So I think that, that was something that I actually really enjoyed um, reflecting back.
0: And do you recall what your contribution was to that team effort? Were you a, well, yeah, a really good looking tree or were you a, a dancer <laughs> or what was your role?
1: So I did, I did multiple Um one of them, I was a, I guess a, a little boy, um, uh, I guess kind of I'm trying to think of the way to describe this, but sort of, um, al- almost in this sort of, um, Oliver type kind of feel to it. Um, so, and that was very much dancing on stage. And similarly, I was in an Egyptian themed, uh, one, one year too, where I was on stage. But then another year, I was actually backstage in the crew, sort of helping to make the show happen. And both of those experiences, or all of those experiences, are really enjoyable right. So being up on stage of course is really fun and exhilarating because you know you're, you're up there and everyone's looking at you, you've got to you know do it in writing and coordinate it otherwise everything sort of falls apart. But also the hustle and bustle and excitement of being behind the scenes and making sure things go to plan too was a lot of fun. So yeah, multiple roles over multiple of So I
0: I love that very positive reflection. There'd be plenty of people too however, who would say that idea of being on stage The idea Mm. of, of having lots of people looking at you and if you do happen to, to muck something up, lots of people are witnessing that. Um, the idea of public speaking comes up a lot of, of being a, a, an area and look to be, to be fair at the moment we're interviewing some potential student leaders for, for, for next year and one of the challenges that they speak of is, is public speaking and the idea of having to get up and, and speak in front of an audience what's your memories of, of doing that sort of activity? Where you're not necessarily part of a team, you're maybe up there on your own, whether it be in debating or, or even giving a speech at an assembly or something. Any memories of that sort of pursuit? Yeah,
1: look um, I mean I'm actually quite an introverted person by nature. So, you know, getting up in front of people uh, is not something that necessarily comes easily and it's just literally been a, a case of practice and, and making mistakes and learning along the way. And so, I don't think I would have been the most confident person early on in my school years. Um, yeah, I'm glad in the case of the Estedford that I wasn't sort of in a lead role right up the front. I was more sort of, you know, with a group of people doing their thing, but, um, now I do give regular, you know, public talks in, in some cases to quite large audiences and I'm also a lecturer. So, you know, when we don't have COVID, I get up in front of, you know, 200 or 300 people in some cases, um, you know, and, and give lectures. And so there's no one else there. It's just you. So you've got to, got to make it work. But I, I think, you know, again, just, just practice, you know, and yeah. starting off with, you know, small opportunities to talk, whether it's just to a small, uh, smaller group, a community group, and then build from there. But I think the other thing that people need to recognize is that generally speaking, when you're giving a talk to a group, whoever it is, they are there to hear you and they want to hear what you have to say and they're supportive. So mm. if you stumble on your words or you say something and it's not perfect, they're not going to care. Mm. Um, they're going to cheer you on and support you. So I think, you know, people need to realize that your the audience is your friend and, um, they want to see you succeed as much as you of course do want on a personal level. So, you know, yeah, it is something that I recognize people fear. I think it's, uh, sort of in that top 10 of things that people most fear and public speaking is right up near the top.
0: It sure um, is, it sure but is. I,
1: but I think it can be demystified a bit as well.
0: Yes, I, I, and I tend to agree with you. I, I like the idea that if people have come to to hear you, or they're enrolled in a class, or they're they're in a an environment that there is a speaker, they want to use this time well, and so they want the speaker to be good. They they are yep. willing you on to yep. to give some good content, some good stories, some good insight, or whatever. So you're right. If if we go into it thinking that the audience is my friend, that that is a, a, a different mindset, I suppose, a different approach, and and uh, gives a more positive outcome. Uh, Absolutely. To calm some of those nerves. Yeah it's really good. Now you mentioned there some of your lecturing and, and some of the opportunities you have at the moment. Let's fill in some gaps on how you got to that point. You finished senior school at uh, at uh at Yarra Grammar. You graduated in 1993. Without giving us numbers, what d- did you get the, the score that you wanted or needed and where did that lead you to?
1: Yeah, look, I did get the score that I needed, although only just, um, so, and I think this is another really important lesson, so, um, I applied to get into James Cook University in Townsville, but I also applied to other universities, I should say, in Victoria, including Deakin University, um, but James Cook University was very much my first choice, because, uh, probably like a lot of environmental um, scientists or people wanting to do environmental science. A lot of people want to do marine biology Mm -hmm. and, um, James Cook University in Townsville is recognized as one of the best places in Australia and in fact, the world to do that. So I applied and I got in, but I got in provisionally. So my marks were sort of good, Uh, you know, they were certainly quite good, but sort of, you know, not at that sort of really upper end where I would just get in without any, any qualms. And I remember the letter in fact saying, you know, you need to sort of reach these benchmarks in the first year of your, um, you know, degree to make sure that you can continue. Um, and I think that's a really important lesson that, you know, a lot of the people that I know and respect as well, haven't necessarily had things come easily to them over their career. Mm. They haven't always been right at the top of their class necessarily early on in their careers, uh, you know, or, or sorry, in, the, in their schooling. Um, so persistence is a, is a really important thing. And, but passion combined with that. So if you genuinely have a desire to do something, uh, and you put the effort in, um, you know, you can go on to succeed. So, um, yeah, look, it was a really big choice for me to go to James Cook University. Cause again, similar to going to Yarra Valley, you know, from primary school and not knowing anybody, mm. this was an even more extreme case yeah. of that going from Melbourne to Townsville, which is roughly 2000 kilometers away. And I did not know a single person in Townsville. So I left my family, left all my friends, everything uh, and jumped on a bus actually took two days to get there. <laughs> it was not a fun bus trip. Wow. Um, cause that's back then, um, airline tickets were horrendously expensive. Um, so yeah, and then arrived in this place that I knew nothing about, but I don't regret it for a second because, um, I learned so much, um, you know, both as a, you know, in terms of, what it takes to become a scientist and, and my career, but also just as a person, you know, going to a new town and and growing up right, as a, as a young adult. It was a really enjoyable
0: experience. Yes, Th- thrown in at the deep end and and had to yep. fend for yourself and work it out. Yeah, yeah. What a terrific experience and takes a certain courage and self-confidence to, to do that though. Um, yep. and, and yeah, I love <laughs> and, and many of our um, younger listeners wouldn't appreciate that you don't just jump on a plane and, and just go there. <laughs> that you've actually, yeah, two days on a bus and it you know, yeah. uh, <laughs> it's a long way away of course. And, yeah. Uh, so you've done relatively well at university yep. then as well. And then you graduate and you become a.
1: Yeah, so i become a doctor first I guess, and then a professor. But I've, you know, I've thought about that a lot too, that You know, um, I, last year I was promoted to the, um, level of professor and I reflected on, um, you know, how long that's taken and that's, uh, you know, 26 years, um, post high school of doing an undergraduate degree, doing an honours degree, um, being a research assistant for a couple of years, doing a PhD, then doing a postdoc for a couple of years and then many, many years of, you know, being lecturer, um, senior lecturer, associate professor. So it's, it's, it's a long journey to sort of Mm. reach that level to become a professor. So, um, and again, I, I don't, you know, wouldn't change a thing. It's been an incredibly enjoyable experience and it's taken to be some amazing places. And I think, again, one of the great things about being an environmental scientist is you get to go to incredible landscapes, but also you get to work with incredible people in all sorts of different places. So yeah, it's, um, you know, a a lot, a lot of training and a lot of education to get to that point. But again, uh, I feel really fortunate to have had that opportunity.
0: So, so, Excuse my ignorance, there's years and years of study and really intense and some would say you're an academic environmental scientist. Yeah. But where is the hands-on? Are you actually and and again, excuse my ignorance and with all due respect, are you making a difference? Like are you, yes you're educating other people but are you, you, what happens in your daily pursuit, whether it's your own encounters with the environment or you know, are are you, uh, what you're researching and exploring is that, is that helping anything or anyone? I,
1: I think they're really great questions and there's lots of different ways to impact the world. Of course you know, um, having the knowledge that you have about a particular area and sharing that with your friends and family you know, is one way to influence of course community. Um, I do a lot of science communication and public outreach, so I don't just, you know, do research and publish papers, scientific papers, and then sort of leave it there. But I then actively go on to communicate that research in avenues like the conversation, you know, the print media, radio, and so forth. So communicating how my work and the work of my colleagues and students, you know, how that actually helps us to address arguably one of the biggest, if not the biggest challenge that the world faces. And that's, you know, what's happening to the environment and and in things like extinction, because we are obviously part of the environment and it affects us and we affect it. And we need to take care of it. And of course we currently have, you know, um, politicians and leaders meeting in in, um, Glasgow to, you know, talk about what to do about um, climate change. So yeah, I, I do actually spend a lot of time making sure that my work does impact the real world if you like, outside of the sort of the ivory tower so to speak. And I've also helped um you know brief policy documents, spoken with politicians and so forth. So I do actually go um above and beyond I guess in in many cases what might be normally expected.
0: So thank you, thank you for your work. Are we, are we, is the fight real and are we winning? (laughs) The fight is
1: absolutely real. Um, so, you know, in terms of extinctions of species, we're seeing, um, rates of extinctions of species that are well above what we'd consider normal. And we can measure what's normal, in commas, by looking at the, uh, fossil record for extinctions. And in a contemporary sense, we're causing extinctions well above what you'd expect to be normal. And you can only, you only need to turn on the news to see the impact of, um, what's happening in, in many parts of the world, including Australia on the environment and the Great Barrier Reef being a perfect example of that. So we're not winning the overall war, but we are winning battles. And I think that's really important to remember that, you know, conservation, um, can actually be really, uh, confronting, I guess, Korea in environmental science as well, because there are many losses. Um, but it, it is really important to remember that we have many passionate and great scientists. And in fact, Australia has, you know, an incredible number of world-class scientists, much more than you would predict based on the size of the country. So a little bit like sport, where Australia punches well and truly above its weight for numbers of, you know, champion sports people. Um, Australia does the same in science. So we are finding really creative ways to address big challenges for the environment. So I think that's important to not lose hope and realize that, you know, we can actually change things for the better and we need to because the reality is that all our survival and our way of life and you know um, standard living is completely dependent upon it. So yes,
0: yes. That's, that's a really helpful uh, educated and informed uh, and I would say cutting edge understanding. So thank you for, and and for describing it in ways that makes sense even to me. So thank you. Um, tell me though, as far as Covid goes, there were some spaces, some places that really changed and and, my understanding is that they they were relieved by not having so many people traipsed through or, or in the waterways or or exploring yeah. or travelling. And is that is that right? And is that like I'm I'm sure we can't intentionally. Gosh, I don't want to get controversial here. I don't. I, uh, we can't c- intentionally l- stop the world again. However, yeah. it has had some benefits, hasn't it?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, again, I'm sure people have seen the sort of images of wildlife moving through cities, you know, say mountain lions, you know, moving through, I think it was Santiago, right through the middle of Santiago. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there was some, um, some feral goats. I think it might've been one part of Wales, you know, so there's, there's been all these examples of, um, animals basically reoccupying, you feel like, areas that would have been, you know, theirs, essentially their habitat, but they now avoid those areas because of humans and, you know, cars and things like that. I think there was kangaroos hopping down the main street of Adelaide and all sorts of things. So I think what that shows, of course, is a glimpse into potentially a slightly different world. Uh, You know, I don't think we're going to sort of go back or we're going to have this, like you said, you know, this, um, completely different world that, was a a consequence of particularly lockdowns for, you know, cities and of course, Melbourne, um, knows that better than anybody because we've had the longest lockdown of any city in the world. But I think it, it does show that we can do things a bit differently and, Mm. you know, whether we think about our cities in a different way, and there's some really interesting, um, you know, research being done about that, about green design of buildings to make them you know both also more sustainable but also potentially usable for wildlife um you know so um you know, parklands the value of parklands of course you know many people when they were locked down mm. you know had this 5k radius to walk in and of course if you like myself I'm really fortunate I live in southeast melbourne and we've got lots of beautiful green space and parkland around us but some people don't, um, and of course, therefore, that really impacted them heavily in terms of their day-to-day life during lockdown. So I think that emphasises that if we prioritise, you know, taking care of nature and ideally even creating more areas for nature and, and living in a more sustainable way and sharing those areas with nature, then you know, there's there's going to be there's going to be benefits um, for all of us. So I, th- I think that's the real lesson from COVID is that. It, it provided a, a window, if you like, of you know
0: what the world could
1: be like if we make some different choices.
0: Yes, I, I really like that. And yet, if I'm living in even even the southeast, you yeah. know, a- around Yarra Valley Grammar, and again, we would say there is there are some beautiful nature lands mm-hmm. and reserves and parklands in this area. It's very hard to create more of them, though, isn't it? Is it more reliant on new growth and new development in terms of estates or, and, and setting aside some nature space in those areas?
1: Yeah, I mean obviously we're not going to get rid of people's houses to create more parkland, but I think we can think about our backyards, you know. Are our backyards just completely concrete and do they have no trees or, or do we have, you know, native trees and plants, you know, in, in our area. Do we, do we have a frog pond that we put in our front garden or back garden, you know. So we can change how our own homes look and of course if you scale that up to the size of a suburb and to Mm. the size of a shire, to the size of a state, all of a sudden you've got this pretty dramatic change right, which makes an area that was maybe moderately or marginally suitable to animals, all of a sudden very suitable. Mm. So that things like frogs and birds and so forth can use urban areas as well as areas that are outside of the city. So I think you know, there's huge opportunities there and as I said before, you know, there's a lot of research being done at the moment about green design. You know, you, you've probably seen, you know, big multi-storey, um, complexes with walls that instead of being just concrete are actually plants. Yes, I right? have. Which buffers you from the heat, which is a great thing. So the buildings don't get too hot, which means you lose, you use air conditioning less. But also means, you know, you can have butterflies and birds, you know, flying around you while you're drinking your coffee on your balcony. So, I mean, what what's not to love about that? Mm. So, mm. um, and conserving, you know, what's there, I think is really important too. So those, those little remnants that are still left, you know, um, of bushland in and amongst the suburban areas just need to be cared for. And there's great work being done by community groups and so forth, you know, um, getting rid of weeds and, Revegetating those with native plants. So I think all of those things together can make a huge difference. Mm, I
0: I love that and and I love that we actually can make a difference by, by what we do on our little plot. Uh, And if collectively everybody does a little bit, then that turns into a lot and and makes a big difference. I'm curious and not necessarily expecting you to be an expert, but I know you'll know more than me. Um, you've mentioned frogs and having frogs in our urban environments, and you've mentioned the joy of butterflies being just there while you're having your morning coffee. Tell me about the, why do I keep hearing about the importance of bees? (laughs) Well, they are important.
1: They absolutely are important and like a lot of invertebrates and a lot of insects, they're crucially important. So without bees, um, we'd be in a lot of trouble because (laughs) a large number of our crops, for starters, are pollinated by bees. And we can't recreate that very easily ourselves. So there has been examples of, um, parts of the world where bee populations have collapsed, um, for a range of reasons, whether it's pesticides or there's a um, problem called Varroa mite, and it causes bee populations to, to collapse. And, and then you're left with a situation, well, who's going to pollinate the crops? And so, you know, if that's an almond orchard or an apple orchard or something, you know, people have gone to extreme lengths in some cases of literally hand pollinating hundreds, or in some cases thousands of plants. So you can imagine how time consuming mm-hmm. and costly that is, as opposed to taking care of bees, um, you know, uh, and other, um, pollinators as well, who do that job for us 24 hours a day, seven days a week for free. <laughs> so we should be taking care of them, that's the least we can do. Um, and aside from that, you know, I would argue that, you know, biodiversity has has its own right to, to live on this planet just like we do. So, you know, aside from the sort of the benefit to us, we should be taking care of these, um, these species themselves. And I sort of equate it to, you know, um, pieces of art. So, you know, if you go into a gallery or a museum and you're lucky enough to see, you know, um, an original Van Gogh Or you know, a Picasso or something like that. You know, those pieces of art are irreplaceable. Um, you can't recreate them. Um, and like species, you know, so their species have evolved over millions of years. And if we don't take care of them, they disappear, then you know, those, those precious things disappear as well. So I think, you know, we should, we
0: we should be taking um, good care of them for a whole range of reasons. Mm, Absolutely. So, just Stick with me here. This is a a, yeah. a, 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 th- a thin thread, and we're going somewhere <laughs> you have no idea where we're going, and, and I'm not even sure I'm going to get there. But you mentioned <laughs> this is not a very uh, smooth transition to a new conversation at all. So I'm just putting it's all it good. out there. Just but go for it. <laughs> you mentioned mite. Yeah. I thought Vegemite. <laughs> I'm thinking Australia, and now I'm thinking travel. Yeah you've had the opportunity to explore and 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 research a variety of environments, I dare say globally. Tell me a nature, ecological, environmental spot that you've either been to or would love to go to and if anybody gets the chance you would say book yourself a ticket to go and see what?
1: Yeah, look, um, there's, I think we're spoiled in Australia for starters, you know, you could spend the rest of your life looking at places in Australia, you wouldn't see it all. Um, and so, you know, there's so many great places in Australia. So, you know, some of the, my favorite places in Australia would be, um, Lawn Hill, um, Gorge, um, which is up sort of near the Northern Territory to Queensland border, spectacular landscape, beautiful area for, you know, um, canoeing and swimming, um, surrounded by desert. Um, Iron Range National Park in Northern Cape York, beautiful rainforest with all sorts of spectacular exotic animals, you know, um, palm cockatoos, these beautiful big black birds with red cheeks. Um, you know, of course the Great Barrier Reef is a a wonderful experience. Lord Howe Island that I've been lucky enough to go to is a truly spectacular place. So they're just, you know, Australian examples. Um, and overseas, you know, my work has taken me also to places like Papua New Guinea, um, mm-hmm. the Torricelli mountain ranges, um, which are the mountain ranges just above the Highland mountain ranges. Um, and that was looking for tree kangaroos and yeah, walking through a beautiful, pristine rainforest was incredible. Um, and Romania actually, so in 2019, uh, just actually before COVID took off. I was fortunate enough, I was on a sabbatical, um, so an academic study leave, um, and I was visiting a colleague in Romania. And it's uh, probably a part of Europe that a lot of people don't go to, and it's not really on their radar. Um, but it's one of the most beautiful parts of Europe, I argue, and it has really large intact forests left, which most of Europe doesn't. Um, and it also has a really, um, rich cultural history going right back, of course, to the Saxons and so forth. Mm. So, It's, um, it's a fascinating place, Romania, and I got to see bears in the wild, which was pretty exciting. So look, I could, I could talk for hours about all the amazing places in both Australia and the world, um, that I would recommend people going to. But I think if you get the opportunity to travel and be in nature, just do it. Um, and I think that's another, uh, that that's been probably another, I guess, potential benefit in some ways, if there are any benefits of COVID and you know, there's not very many, but is that it's, it's created, you know, people re-engaging I think with Australia. So, a lot of people might travel and go overseas um, and you know, that's an enjoyable thing to do. But of course, because international travel has been really off the agenda, and may continue to still be difficult for quite a while. A lot of people will be traveling around Australia instead, and there's just so many great places to explore. So, I think
0: that's, that's wonderful. Mm. And, and they might be obvious, but give us two or three suggestions that, as we travel locally, How can we also, care for, look after, maintain the environment?
1: Yeah, well I mean there's the really obvious things right, like you know, (laughs) just making sure you pick up after yourself and you know, so tread lightly as they say, you know um, leave only footprints and take only photos, is the classic phrase that people you know, talk about when the environment. So I think you know, and there's, and there's more practical things like you know, if you're bushwalking, you know cleaning your boots. If you're going from one place to another, Mm. because there's um, this uh, situation um, of a fungus that you can spread um that's in the soil um and that can spread from one environment to another and cause the death of trees so that there are really important things you can do if you are enjoying you know going off the beaten track a bit and hiking and things like that um and i think i think the other important thing too is just to really um you know invest in the communities that you're traveling through as well so i think that's a a really important thing about travel is that you're, you're you're visiting towns and you're spending money in those towns and And that helps to keep those towns alive and that also therefore also helps um you know really i guess um, conserve areas adjacent to them so you know um traveling to see wildlife and 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 nature is is one of the main um sources of economic um value for australia in terms of tourism um so the more that we can do to sort of i guess take care of these environments again it's going to come back to benefit us in a whole way so Mm. Um, yeah, it's all, it's all a fairly sensible thing, but it is, it is really important, important yeah. to, to bear all those things in mind.
0: And, and I appreciate, yes, they are simple, but it's helpful to be reminded as, as yeah. opportunities present themselves over the next few weeks and months. Yeah. That we do tread lightly, I, I, agree. And maybe, maybe be willing to slow down and, and really soak in the beauty that's around. Um, another very thin thread of, uh, of moving and transitioning to a new part of the conversation. And that is, from going to moving lightly and slowly. I'm gonna move into the, what I like to call the lightning round. Where I'm gonna throw a whole lot of questions at you really quickly. (laughs) And they might be one-word answers or a short sentence. Um, you and Richie from the class of 1993. Are you ready for the lightning round? I am ready for it. Strap yourself in, here we go. What house were you in at Yarra Valley Grammar? Arnott. And were Arnott any good back in your day? They're always good. <laughs> <laughs> the, it's an interesting response and some people say <laughs> yes, they were great. And my follow up question is what do you think was your greatest contribution to your house? Uh, it would have been basketball for sure. Okay, okay. Um, you can't choose neither house swimming or house athletics? house swimming. Why?
1: Uh, because I really enjoyed it and I was quite good at backstroke.
0: Very good. How did you travel to school back in your day? Uh, the bus, yep. And yep. you picked it up where and how long did it take?
1: Uh, pick up the bus, uh, where it would have been sort of, I guess sort of Templestowe area. Uh, and it took about half an hour to get, because the bus went, um, it actually had quite a, quite a long path. It went out via Eltham, came back and then went all the way out to Warrandyte and then eventually got to Yarra. So it was quite a long bus trip, but it was, it was a fun bus
0: trip. And did you end up growing some, some bus friends? Is that is absolutely that right?
1: Absolutely. And I'm sure most people who've taken the bus understand the uh, culture of the bus where as a young and you start at the front of the bus, and as you get older you move towards the back of the bus.
0: (laughs) Yes, very good. What would we find regularly in your lunchbox as a school Uh, student?
1: Yeah, look pretty, pretty stock standard. Sandwich, some fruit, you know, nothing too fancy.
0: What was your first car?
1: What was my first car? My first car I think was a Toyota and I'm just trying to think what make it was. It might have been a Corolla I think.
0: Yeah, little Corolla. Uh,
1: What was your first job that you were earning money for? Uh, well if you don't include a paper round or refereeing basketball, that was when I was, you know, sort of in my teens. Um, I guess my, my first real job was um, was working as a, you know, as as a lecturer. So, you know, I went from having sort of pretty minor jobs, um, when I was young. And then yeah, going to university, studying and then I was fortunate enough to then, you know, get a paid job as a research assistant. Uh, and then eventually it became a lecturer. So,
0: Yes, being a lecturer and being of the environment and you need to be up-to-date and aware and alert and technologically uh, savvy. What are two or three apps that you use a lot on your phone? Well Zoom, (laughs) we use a lot now
1: because of, because of particularly Covid. Uh, what other apps would I use? I use Google Maps a lot because I like to move around a lot, um, and I probably use, uh, Twitter and Facebook quite a bit and that's largely because of, I spend a lot of time on social media platforms communicating about science and the importance of science.
0: Yes, yes. Do you, um, are you a reader? Do you enjoy books?
1: I do enjoy reading. Unfortunately, I don't probably spend as much time doing it as I would like to. Um, And I think it's probably also partly the fact that I do a lot of reading as work. And so sometimes it's hard to see um, reading as a a relaxation thing. So... um, Probably like, again, a lot of people, um, in recent times, they've been watching a lot of things on, on, uh, streaming services, (laughs) lots of, lots of great TV series and things like that.
0: Yes, yes. Is there a, a piece of work from your school days that you're particularly proud of? It might be something you submitted and got feedback and then resubmitted and, or it might be a, a, you know, a particular project or an, an artwork that you just, you've just felt you, you nailed it.
1: Yeah, I think the, one of the tasks that I enjoy, um, that I d- enjoyed doing was a geography assignment where we had to look at coastal change over time using, um, aerial photography. And I did that, um, on the Le Peninsula, which is a coastline that I'm pretty familiar with. So I really enjoyed doing
0: that. Hmm, wow. And, and, and again, excuse my ignorance. There no drones flying back in those days. You're not operating a drone to take your overhead pictures. Are no. they, are you sourcing them from... From the Funk and Wagnalls encyclopedia back in those days? (laughs) Yeah
1: no just stock standard aerial photography, you know black and white aerial photography taken at different time, time timelines. So um, and then just sort of comparing the two. So yeah pretty, pretty crude technology compared to what we're capable of doing now. Yes, can you cook? I can cook and actually really enjoy cooking. It's something that I I love spending time doing.
0: So thanks for inviting me. I'm coming over to your place for (laughs) dinner. What's, what are you going to serve up? What's, uh, what's your go to?
1: Oh, uh, look at it probably be something something Asian of, you know, Asian variety. So whether it's, you know, a stir fry or maybe even a curry of some sort. Um and then I do enjoy making some particular desserts. And I think one of the easiest desserts to make and also one of the most enjoyable is tiramisu. So okay. yeah, I was given the recipe by a Italian lady many years ago and she told me that I wasn't allowed to tell anybody else. <laughs> but uh <laughs> But yeah, it's, it's a really easy, easy dish to make and, uh, it always seems, um, seems to please
0: people, so. so. there's a secret in there, don't tell us now, yeah, because no, I wouldn't no want secrets. you to upset your <laughs> Italian lady friend. Um, take me out of the picture, you can invite three people from any era, any time in history, uh, any background, profession, who's going to come to your dinner?
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, so the late um, comedian Robin Williams, I think, would be coming along just because uh, he was just such a unique person. I think, in terms of uh, his wit, his humour, his yeah. ability to do personae, so you know that the dinner party would not be would not be um, <laughs> boring if Robin was there. Um, I'd have to have David Attenborough there. Mm, um, nice. Because you know, again, being an ecologist, uh, yeah, I think you know he'd have so many wonderful stories to tell about what he's seen. Yeah. And the, th- the third option is a really tough one. And I'm sort of struggling to think, you know, there's, there's so many people to choose from, you know, it might be a sports person, you know, someone like Michael Jordan, we'd be interested to talk to as a, again, as a, as a lover of basketball, but even Jane Goodall, mm. who has done amazing environmental work herself as well. Um, you know, uh, similar to what David Attenborough has done. So yeah, I'd, I'd have a hard time narrowing it down to three, to three, but, um, th- those people would be definitely in the mix.
0: It'd be quite the conversation wouldn't it and uh, and just yeah. fascinating to, to be around and, and I think they all enjoy your tiramisu as well. <laughs> um, did you have a nickname when you were growing up at school?
1: Did I have a nickname? No, I think it was pretty, pretty, pretty um, boring because one of the things about my name, which is you know, Ewan obviously, it's, it's pretty hard to abbreviate Ewan. Um, <laughs> it's already quite short. So I think I probably just got called Richie a lot, you know, which is, I guess is a bit of an Australian tradition to call people by their, you know, their surname rather than their first name. Yes. Um, so, yeah, no, no no, real nicknames I can think of. I mean, I, I definitely remember being called Shorty, you know, regularly when I was young because I was quite short and I didn't sort of have my growth spurt until, you know, probably let, quite late in my teens. Um, so when you play basketball and you're short, I guess you kind of get <laughs> yeah. used to being called things like that. But yeah, I didn't have one that stuck, I don't think.
0: Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, As we uh, move to wrap up our time together, and and I really appreciate your your generosity of time um, in in the midst of all that's going on at this time of the year. I wonder if, if you have a memorable place on the property here at Yarra Valley Grammar. Is there a place you like to hang out or or if I was looking for you somewhere, where, where might you be?
1: Yeah, there would have been two places, either the basketball courts or Um, I just love the bush down the bottom of the ovals. Mm. And I think again, as someone who loves the outdoors and the environment, having that really large section of bush down behind the ovals is pretty special. And I remember quite vividly, you know, doing cross-country and cross-country training. Mm. We'd often run through that bit of bush, um, and that was always fun to have the excuse to do that. So
0: they, they've been the two areas I'd love to spend a lot of time in. Yeah, I love that, I love that. And uh, because Those places like the bush for example where most of the time you're not free to go. Exactly. They make them all the more special when you do get to to go and have a look around. Yeah. Yeah that's great, that's terrific. Um, what does success mean to you?
1: Oh that's a big question. I I think success really for me is um, you know, it's about legacy. It's about you Mm. know, what what have I achieved over my career that is going to have a lasting benefit. And I think one of the things that I really reflect a lot, a lot is that you know, I supervise a lot of you know, PhD students and honours students and obviously I, I teach undergraduate students as well. And I guess if I can help them you know, have good careers of their own and for them to go on and achieve great things um, which will obviously benefit the environment and conservation and so forth. And I think for me that's a definite success for me, so. Mm,
0: yeah I love yeah. that, I love that and uh, it's obviously important work that you're doing and and vital for our future. So, yep. uh, thank you on behalf of uh, those who are listening and and those who get to but also those in our future who get to enjoy the places that you're helping motivate people to care for and look after and nurture and uh, and hopefully prolong the, the life of. I'm going to offer a phrase to you which which might be familiar to you and and I'm going to ask you what does it mean and then what does it actually mean and the phrase is Lavavi oculus. Do you recall yes. that?
1: <laughs> I do recall that, you know, it's kind of on, on the blazer and, um, yeah. So, um, my, my recollection of sort of that phrase and what it means is basically to lift that one's eyes. Yep. And I think that's actually a really nice, um, image and, and, and phrase. And to me, you know, it really is about being aware of what's around you. And, and I think one of the things that I think about a lot is that, um, we're pretty fortunate in Australia. You know, we, we take a lot of things for granted um, compared to many other p- parts of the world. And so there are there are wonderful opportunities available to a lot of us. And, um, you know, so we should take that o- opportunity. So I think for me, yeah, you know, that's what it means. And I guess, again, it's, it's a nice phrase because it actually relates really well to science because science is all about observation. It's about looking at the world and, and seeing patterns and then saying, Okay, so why is it like that? And then doing experiments and so forth to really try and get to the, to the you know, the root of what might be going on. So, I think it's a, it's a perfectly appropriate phrase to sort of think about as a scientist as well.
0: Mm, that's terrific. Ewan, what, this is my last question, it's a two-part question. What is the one area or theme or topic that you really wanted to talk about? What's the question you wanted to ask, wanted me to ask you? And then, can you answer that question?
1: Well, I think we've really discussed it but you know it's it's really about you know why I choose to work on what I do which is you know the environment and you know I think at the end of the day it's fundamental to our existence and you know it it keeps us happy it keeps us healthy you know it helps the economy um it's culturally important so you know I think they're all the reasons um that I do that and again also as a parent you know I've got two kids um and I want them to have you know the experiences and and um you know, wonderful times that I've had in nature, um, and likewise that, you know, generations, you know, after them and so on and so forth. So that's, that's why
0: I do what I do. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, thank you for doing what you do. <laughs> it's, uh, it's obviously important work and thank you for spending time with us today. You and Richie from the class of 1993, this is the Inspired by Yarra podcast and and there's been stories and experiences of your time at Yarra that clearly have helped you to foster your enjoyment in nature and creation and and investigating it further and understanding it more. But now, perhaps more than ever the work that you do is vital, it's it's crucial and for that you are an inspiration to us and and we thank you for your time, for your storytelling, for your critical work and we uh, trust that you will go forward with enthusiasm and uh, and 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 I guess our support and encouragement and gratitude for the work that you do. Keep up the good work. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. And that wraps up another episode of Inspired by Yara. Thank you Ewan for your time and for your insight, your expertise, your wisdom, your storytelling. Really appreciated. I did and I know our listeners did too the little insights, the little suggestions and tips as to how we can do our part in our small environment. Whether it's our front yard, maybe it's something we can do on our property. It's the trees that we don't knock down. It's the concrete that we don't lay. And we as we travel we slow down, we investigate, we explore, we appreciate, we enjoy creation. And we treat it kindly and tenderly. So that it is there for years and years to come. What a important work that Ewan has pursued. A dedicated career, one that has seen its success but because of hard work and dedication. If you've enjoyed this episode I would love if you would uh, share it with others, share it with those who you think would also benefit and lead them to the podcast and help them to subscribe. If you too have already subscribed, thank you and encourage others. Because as we grow this community of people who are connected and reconnecting through this podcast, it helps to grow our wider Yarra Valley Grammar community. We encourage you to stay connected, to subscribe, to tune in. And to share the episodes along the way. And I hope you'll enjoy, you'll join us again and enjoy when you get there, next episode when I'll sit down with another Yog, another Yarra Old Grammarian and see how they too have been inspired by Yarra. This is Paul Joy and on behalf of everyone here at Yarra, including the small and committed team who put these stories together and share them with you. I want to wish you another day of inspiration where you make a positive intentional difference in the world around you.